I want to, today I'm going to start with a reading, and I normally don't do that. Those of you that have heard my preaching, I normally don't read much. I'm very extemporaneous, but uh, this reading, uh, it's a, the first chapter of a book that comes from a pastor who uh, was born in San Angelo, grew up in Andrews, Texas, and pastors in San Antonio. Uh, though you may not know his biography, many of you do know or have at least read some of the writings from Max Licato. And uh, he is a, a, writes some great devotional books, written over 100 books. And I want to read uh, this short chapter uh, as we get started with our, our study today. Our lesson today is going to come from 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. So if you want to go ahead and flip there. But I would encourage you to, to listen and, uh, and just allow uh, just this, this reading to, to speak to you as well before we get to Scripture. The noise and the bustle began earlier than usual in the village. As night gave way to dawn, people were already on the streets, vendors positioning themselves on the corners of the most heavily traveled avenues. Store owners were unlocking doors to their shops. Children were awakened by the excited barking of the street dogs and the complaints of donkeys pulling their carts. The owner of the inn had awakened earlier than most in the town. After all, the inn was full. All the beds were taken. Every available mat or blanket had been put to use. Soon, all the customers would be stirring and there would be a lot of work to do. One's imagination is kindled about the conversation of the innkeeper and his family at the breakfast table. Did anyone mention the arrival of the young couple the night before? Did anyone ask about their welfare? Did anyone comment on the pregnancy of the girl on the donkey? Perhaps. Perhaps some raised the subject, but at best, it was raised, not discussed. There was nothing that novel about them. They were possibly one of several families turned away that night. Besides, who had time to talk about them when there was so, many, so much excitement in the air? Augustus did the economy of Bethlehem a favor when he decreed that a census should be taken. Who could remember when such commerce had hit that village? No, it's doubtful that anyone mentioned the couple's arrival, wondering about the condition of the girl. They were too busy. The day was upon them. The day's bread had to be made. The morning's chores had to be done. There was so much to do uh, to imagine that the impossible had occurred. God had entered the world as a baby. Yet, were someone to chance upon the sheep stable and the outskirts of Bethlehem that morning, what a peculiar scene they would have behold. The stable stinks like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, and sheep reeks pungently in the air. The ground is hard, the hay scarce, cobwebs cling to the ceiling, and a mouse scurries around the dirt floor. A more lowly place of birth could not exist. Off to one side sit a group of shepherds. They sit silently on the floor, perhaps perplexed, perhaps in awe, no doubt in amazement. Their night watch had been interrupted by an explosion of light from heaven and a symphony of angels, God goes to those who have time to hear Him. On this cloudless night, He went to simple shepherds. Near the young mother sits the weary father of, if anyone is dozing, he, he is. He can't remember the last time he sat down, and now that the excitement has subsided a bit, now that Mary and the baby are comfortable, he leans against the wall of the stable and feels his eyes grow heavy. He still hasn't figured it out at all. The, the mystery of the event puzzles him, but he hasn't the energy to wrestle with the questions. 
What's important now is that the baby is fine and that Mary is safe. As sleep comes, he remembers the name the angel told him to use, Jesus. We will call him Jesus. Wide awake is Mary. My, how young she looks. Her head rests on the soft leather of Joseph's saddle. The pain has been eclipsed by wonder. She looks at the face of the baby, her son, her Lord, his majesty. At this point in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what he is doing is a teenage girl in a smelly stable. She can't take her eyes off of him. Somehow Mary knows she is holding God. So this is he. She remembers the words of the angel. His kingdom will never end. He looks anything but a king. His face is prunish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still helpless and a piercing cry of a baby. And he's absolutely dependent upon Mary for his well-being. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep, manure, and sweat. Divinity entered the world on the floor of a stable, through the womb of a teenager, and the presence of a carpenter. She touches the face of the infant God. How long was your journey? This baby had overlooked the universe. These rags keeping him warm were the robes of eternity. His golden throne room had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen. And worshiping angels had been replaced with kind but bewildered shepherds. Meanwhile, the city hums. The merchants are unaware that God has visited their planet. The innkeeper would never believe that he had just sent God into the cold. And the people would scoff at anyone who told them the Messiah lay in the arms of a teenager on the outskirts of their village. They were all too busy to consider the possibility. Those who missed His Majesty's arrival that night missed it, not because of evil acts or malice. No, they missed it because they simply weren't looking. Little has changed in 2,000 years, has it? I I read that as, like I said, I, I never read a long reading from up here, but I don't think I could say it any better than what Max wrote it. For us to try to enter into that scene, to step into that place, that town, that day, with that, the busyness of, of the commerce of, of, of Bethlehem at a time when, when people were coming from all around the world to, to be a part of, of uh, the census that was going on there, nobody knew, nobody had a clue that in the middle of the night, the God of the universe stepped out of his eternal place of glory into a, the form of a baby to, to become incarnate is the, is the church word that we use. God in the flesh, to enter into human flesh so that he might walk among us with the intent of shedding his blood and dying on a cross so that we might be saved. 1 John is John's argument, almost a legal argument that he mounts that we might understand that Jesus is the incarnate Christ who comes to be born among us and die for us so that we could have eternal life. 
John, as he writes his letter to the church, as we've talked about, is writing the letter to a church that is in turmoil, that's struggling in some ways with some false theology, some theology that denied that, that Jesus was truly God and other theology that denied that Jesus was truly human, that he'd actually come in the flesh, that maybe while he was walking around here, he was some type of aberration. John, in 1 John chapter 5, especially in verse 6 down through verse 12, he makes a legal case. He makes an argument for the fact that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is our only hope. And I want to walk you through that, that case today. Beginning, I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. That was our last verse from last week. It's a transition verse, and so I don't want to miss it. We'll read that transition verse, and then the majority of the sermon is going to come from verse 6 through 12. Read with me this text. Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ. He is the one who came by water and the blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these are in agreement. If we accept human testimony... God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in the son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. This passage, in in some ways, uh, there's an obvious uh, direction to it, but it also is a little bit confusing. And and John is using some language, I believe, that refers back to his gospel. He began John chapter 1, after he introduced, in a a very uh, deep theological way, he introduced Christ with the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on to say that, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And that's the introduction to John. And then the first incident or the first issue that John talks about in his gospel is the baptism of Christ. When Jesus came to John the Baptist and John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and most scholars believe that that is the, the water that is being referred to here, that Jesus came physically, bodily, and he came and entered into the waters of baptism. And so the first testimony that we see here that, that is, gives evidence that Jesus is not only God, but that Jesus is fully human, is the fact that he stood before the man, John the Baptist. And he comes to John the Baptist and he says, I need you to baptize me. It was as Jesus was beginning his ministry. And in fact, the water and the blood in John 1, 6, represent the terminal points of Jesus' ministry. His ministry began with baptism. It ended with his shedding of blood on the cross. That was what Jesus' ministry, and he, he came to fulfill God's call and give his life for us. So the first of testimony that points to the fact that Jesus is fully human is the fact that Jesus walked among us and he comes to to John the, the Baptist and he enters into the baptismal waters in the Jordan River and has John literally baptize him there at the Jordan River. Now there's three things that get tied together here because not only do we see the testimony of water at the Jordan River, but we see the testimony of the Spirit of God 
at the Jordan River. Because in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, and it's even referred to in John's gospel, though John doesn't give us a chronological account of the baptism, John refers to the fact that the the God of heaven revealed himself at Jesus' baptism. And John saw the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove. In Luke, it says he descended as a dove in bodily form and literally landed on Jesus as a symbol that God's Spirit was coming and was resting upon his Son. And the voice of God from heaven said, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. So here, even at the baptism of Christ, you have the witness of, of the Spirit of, of God, the Holy Spirit. You have the witness of God the Father who spoke from heaven and upon the Son, Jesus, that He is who He says He is. The whole Trinity shows up at the baptism of Christ to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Three witnesses already have appeared, and we're going to walk through these a little bit more. But you have the testimony of water at the water baptism. You have the testimony of blood at the end of his days. Jesus gave his life just as he said would happen. He gave his life for you and me. He told his disciples about it as he walked with them for those three years. He made it clear as he was coming toward the end of his life that he would shed his blood for for us. And his disciples literally saw his death on the cross. So you have the testimony of the the water baptism that he truly was fully man and fully God. You have the testimony of the cross. When Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood on the cross at the end of his life, you have the the incredible uh, pictures that, that God provided for us with the darkness that descended upon the earth. When Jesus took his last breath, the scripture says that, that the, 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 the earth shook, an earthquake happened, and even there were seen some that had died previously come back up out of the graves. God revealed that Jesus was fully human when the blood ran out of his side, poured forth from his head and from his hands and his feet, but he revealed that he was God's son in what took place when Jesus was on the cross. So in the water and the blood, we have the testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. The Spirit, as Jesus was being baptized, descending as a dove, the Spirit testified. And the Spirit, John says, has to be true because the Spirit's very nature is truth. The Spirit of God descended upon the Son, and and, and John is saying, I saw it. I was there. The Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove. And that's testimony that he is the Son of God that he is who he says he is. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment to deal with a textual issue because some of you may have uh, in your hands a King James Version of the Bible or a new King James Version. Uh, Most of you probably have a a more modern translation like the NIV or the New American Standard or what we're we're using here is the, the Christian Standard Bible. And in the King James Version, there is what's referred to now by scholars as the Johannian comma. Johannian means John, okay? So John's comma. There's an additional verse that's included in the King James, and you'll see it in a note in most of your Bibles that says something like this, uh, that there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and there were three that bear witness on earth, the, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. That first part of that verse, there in verse 7, 
The reason that your newer Bibles don't include that is because that phrase does not appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts. In fact, it doesn't appear in a handwritten Greek copy, a manuscript of Greek, until 1400 A.D. So all of the Greek manuscripts prior to 1400 A.D., none of them include that verse. It does appear in some Latin translations starting in the medieval period, around 700 A.D. So 700 to 1500 until the advent of the printing press, you see that, that extra verse uh, that there's a testament, a testimony of Christ to the, the, the Father, Son, Son, and the Spirit. Some who argue, now, I'm, I'm just trying to decide, we talked about this step, I mean, how far do I go? How, how deep do I go down this scholarly hole for some of you who just don't care, okay? Uh, the bottom line is, some, there, there's two primary Greek trains of thought. One of them is that we should hold to the textus receptus or the received text or the majority text. That's the an early Greek trans. I say early. It's an English translation. The earliest English translations come off of a, a group of Greek texts, and that's where the King James came from. But even Erasmus, who, who in the 15th in 16th century, sought to gather the best Greek scholarship and to provide the earliest full Greek New Testaments, did not include that verse in his first two editions. He was coaxed into including it in his third edition, and then in the rest of the editions he put out, he did not include it. There's a reason for that, because all scholarship suggests that that verse was not originally written by John. Now, here's the other issue. Is it true that there's a three witnesses in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And so the truth of that verse, the truth of that statement is not in question. Whether or not John originally wrote it and put it in this letter is what's in question. And I think that, that this is one of the easiest from all of the little bitty questions like this along the way, this is the one of the easiest ones to answer. That verse does not appear until much later. Now, does that mean that, that, oh, it somehow diminishes our understanding or our argument for the Trinity? Absolutely not. Because I've just told you the Trinity is all throughout Scripture. We saw the Trinity at the baptism of Christ. We saw Jesus the Son going in the water. We saw the Holy Spirit descending upon him as a dove. And we heard the voice of the Father from heaven cry out, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Trinity is not in question whether or not you accept that one verse or not. And here's the warning that I would be careful of. I, I essentially believe that some Latin monk in the seventh century thought, had, wrote that in, the, in their side notes, and that eventually made it into the text. And I would warn that monk if I could go back and talk to him and say, remember what Revelation says, do not add to or take away from the Word of God. That I think it's an, an, an addition from later on. It doesn't make any difference with the message of John or the message today. Because here's the bottom line. All three parts of the Trinity testify that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was fully human and that he was fully divine. We already have the testimony of the water. We have the testimony of the blood. We have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. I want to interject one here, the testimony of John himself. Because after he says, there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, there are these three in agreement. He says, if we accept human testimony, who is the human testimony that John's talking about? 
Man, I realize I'm preaching really fast today. I feel like there's a lot I have to get in. Let me take a breath and slow down just a moment. To begin with, the human testimony is John's testimony. As John is writing this letter and as John wrote his gospel, I want you to imagine at this point, John is an 80-year-old man. He's been around from the beginning. If he were literally in a courtroom and he was calling forth the witness, the witness of the water and the witness of the blood and the witness of the Spirit, he could stand there and bear witness himself. He is the only one of the original 12 who's still alive. And as John writes this letter, he's saying there's human testimony. I was there when he was baptized. I was there when he turned water into wine. I was there when he healed the lame man. I saw him spit on the ground and make mud and put it on the eyes of the blind man. And that blind man come alive, come awake and see. I was there when we were weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And he caught Lazarus out of the grave in his grave clothes. I was there watching from afar at the trial. I, John, was there at the cross. He bled and he died. He took his last breath. I was there. I was the first one to the tomb on Sunday morning, the first disciple to rush in and see that he had risen. I was there when he entered into the, the upper room and appeared to, to 10 of us. Thomas wasn't there that day. I was there the second time when Thomas was there. I was there on the mountain when we bowed down and worshiped him and he gave us the great commission and he told us to go and make disciples. I was there. And I believe John, the reason he just simply says human testimony is because John never pointed to himself. All through the Gospel of John, he referred to himself as the, the, God, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never referred to himself by name. Even when he beat Peter to the tomb, when I would have wanted to bragged about that, John didn't brag about it. He never mentioned his own name. But there's other human testimony that John was fully aware of. He knows that, that he wasn't the only one in that upper room. He knows that there's, there were over 500 that Jesus appeared to at one time. And so John says, they're still living among you. Humans who were there, who saw it, who saw Jesus die, who saw Jesus heal the sick, who saw his resurrected body. You have plenty of human testimony, including mine, because I saw it with my own eyes. Jesus is who he says he is. And he says, you have the testimony of God. God's testimony is greater. If, if, if you would accept the testimony of two witnesses, in fact, in a court of law, they were instructed, if you have a testimony that agrees of two or three witnesses, then you basically are to accept that testimony. John's already provided us multiple witnesses. When he refers to human witnesses, he's at least talking about the, the, the 11 disciples, including himself and the women, and then the other 500 that Jesus appeared to. There's multiple witnesses that know that Jesus is a risen Christ, that saw him with their own eyes and experienced 
much of Jesus' life walking alongside him. And, and if that testimony is not enough, listen and look for the testimony of God that he's given about his son. What do you mean the testimony of God? Flip back in your books. Open your scrolls to Malachi. Open your scrolls to Isaiah and read the predictions of how Jesus would come. Look at where it says he would be born in Bethlehem hundreds of years before he appeared there. Look to the Psalms that that speak of a, a Savior who would die who would be crucified, who would die in a brutal, torturous way, but his bones would not be broken. Look to the testimony of the prophets, God's word, and understand that that God testifies that this is his son. Besides the times that we heard the Father speak out of heaven, God the Father has testified that Jesus is Christ. His son, who's coming to this world to save you. And then John points to the testimony of those who believe. Look at the lives that have been changed. Look at those who testify about what God has done in their lives because there's something that happens inside of them. The testimony of the believer. For us as believers, we can have confidence because the Spirit of God who resides in us testifies that he is who he says he is. Dr. David Allen, when he writes his commentary on this section, he talks about how even as a nine-year-old boy, when he put his faith, when he began to believe, he sensed the Spirit of God move in his heart, in his being, and draw him toward God. I had that same experience when I was 12. There's something that, that only God could do that I can't explain. And, 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 and I know that I know that I know and Jesus is who he says he is because God has placed something inside of those who believe that affirm that. And for those that don't believe or aren't ready to take that step yet, step back and look at those who have believed and the difference that was made. You know, you, you can probably look around in your own life and see people who have been transformed by the Spirit of God when they believed. But I don't think that there's any greater testament to the resurrection of Christ and to who he says he is than those 11 disciples who died brutal, torturous deaths. Because see, if they were faking it, they wouldn't have gone to that extent. If they hadn't really seen the risen Christ, if they hadn't seen him do what he did when he was alive, seen his risen, resurrected body, seen him die on there, if they hadn't have seen it, There's no way they'd have put their lives on the line and faced the torture that they faced. Look at the believers. Look at at those who believed in the sacrifice that they were willing to make because of an eyewitness testimony, an eyewitness account, what they saw with their own eyes. They believed, and God did something inside of them that empowered them. You have six categories of witnesses here, really. There's really more witnesses than that, but you have the water, the blood, the spirit, the testimony of John and other humans. You have the testimony of God and you have the testimony of believers throughout history whose lives have been transformed by the power of the living Christ. (laughs) With all of that testimony, 
we come to only a, a handful of viable options of what the truth is. I, I liken this to a judge who gives the, the jury instructions and says, okay, here's what you've heard. Here's the testimony you've heard. Here's the options that you have to render verdict. I would suggest that there's two options in the text. C.S. Lewis adds a third that I'm going to mention. But the two options that are in the text are these. Either Jesus is a liar, and so are all of these witnesses. Every single one of them is wrong, and they're lying. Or Jesus is Lord. One of two options. Either Jesus and all of the witnesses are lying, all of them, or Jesus is Lord. Jesus stepped out of heaven, entered into the, 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 the womb of a virgin to go to the tomb through the cross where he'd be resurrected, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Either Jesus was lying and every one of these witnesses lied, or Jesus is Lord. C.S. Lewis gives us a third option. He says you, you could take the track that Jesus is a lunatic, that he's just crazy, and all the witnesses are liars. <laughs> so Jesus is a nut. The witnesses are bamboozled and confused, and they're all lying too. They didn't really see him die and be raised again. <clears throat> in either case, you have to take the evidence that's been presented before you in this case for Christ and say that all of those witnesses, every one of them is a liar. C.S. Lewis kind of puts it this way. He said, your choice as to who Jesus is are limited in the light of what Jesus has said about himself, in light of what God has said about him, in light of what the water and the blood and the Holy Spirit have said about him. Jesus is a, either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You have no other options. If he is a liar, then dismiss him. If he is a lunatic, then dismiss him. But if he is Lord, repent of your sins, believe in him for salvation, and fall at his feet and worship him, because he alone is worthy of the devotion of our lives. So John gives us his verdict. John saying, after I've looked at all the evidence and I've laid the evidence out, here's my verdict. Here's what I believe. This is the truth. God, now Jesus is God's one and only son, and he's the pathway to eternal life. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. It's the bottom line. Whether you see Him as a lunatic or a liar, if you reject Christ, if you dismiss Him, you do not have life. Scripture says that, that you're, you, you, you are separated from God already. Every single one of us was separated from God. And the hope that you have of life is to believe in the one and only begotten Son of God, Jesus, to put your faith and trust in Him for your eternity, for your today and for your tomorrow and for your future. The verdict is this. If Jesus is Lord which all the witnesses seem to point to, then you either accept him as Lord or you dismiss all the witnesses. And if he is Lord, those who believe in him gain eternal life. Those who don't face eternal death. It's not complicated. It's not easy. 
to surrender your life over to Christ and to seek Him and to walk with Him throughout this world. And yet, the only one who can conquer the enemy, the only one who can conquer sin, and the only ones who conquer death, when we back up to verse 5, he asks the question, who's the one who conquers the world? Who's the one that's going to win when they come to the end of this life? Who's the one that's going to live beyond the enemy's attacks of this world? Who's the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's it. So I plead with you, with John today, if you have never taken that step to say, yes, Jesus, I believe and I want to follow you. I want to worship you as Lord. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Lord, I lay my life before you. You show me where to take it. You know, God may lead you down a path that's completely crazy, but more often than not, God just takes your life and he fills it. There's very few people that, that when, when they give their life fully over to Christ, they have to pick up everything and go to the, the bush of South Africa. There's some that do. I remember when I proposed to my wife, <laughs> I knew that I was called to the ministry and asked her this question. I said, Susan, are you willing, if, if God calls, to go live in a dung hut in South Africa with me? And she said, absolutely. Because see, when we give our life over to Christ, we don't know where it may take us. Now, God's never called me to go live in a dung hut in South Africa yet. Still on the table because he's still Lord. But that's what he's calling you to. Do you believe that he is the Son of God? And if so, are you willing to do life his way? Are you willing to give your life over to him and follow him? Matthew and the praise team are going to come and lead us in a, in a hymn of response. And here's my, my plead with you today. If you're watching online and you would say, Pastor, I've never done that. I've, I've never truly put my faith in Christ and said, I believe in him and want to follow him. I plead with you to reach out to us. You can reach out online right now, wherever you're watching. You can make a comment back to us so that we can reach out to you and, and share with you how you can kind of take those next steps to follow Christ. It's, it's really, you just have to make that decision on your own. But if you're in this auditorium, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. Jesus says, if, if, if you're going to follow me, you have to follow me publicly. There's no private discipleship. It's a private decision that you make. You, you decide whether or not you have to make a decision whether you're going to accept the gift of eternal life that Christ is offering, but you, it, it never stays private. Jesus says, if somebody's trying to keep it private, they're really not mine anyway. And that's one of the reasons we call for a public commitment to Christ. In reality, the early church, a commitment to Christ was always public. It was called baptism. If you want to wait until baptism, come talk to me or, or, or Nathan afterwards and say, hey, I, I want to give my life to Christ. I don't want to walk down the aisle to start it out. I want to be baptized. Come talk to us about it. We'd be glad to set that up and help you move forward in your walk with Christ. <clears throat> but I plead with you, don't ignore the evidence. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the one who was born of a virgin and died on a cross and rose again for your sins and mine. And because of that, 
you only have one of two options. You accept him as true and, and serve him as Lord, or you reject him and dismiss him. This is your chance to respond. If you're online, respond to us. If you're in the auditorium, come forward as soon as we stand. Matthew's going to lead us. Would you stand with me as Nathan comes? If God is calling you toward him, don't hesitate to come. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.